All right, church, if you'll go ahead and open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 is where we find ourselves in God's Word this morning. If you're joining us for the first time or the first time in a while, I want to uh, briefly just give you an idea of where we have been as a church family, where the Lord is leading us as we've uh, several months back Re, uh, re-looked at or took a new fresh look at our membership policies as a church family and uh, decided the Lord was leading us in a direction in which it was going to shape in and, and, and give us a tighter grasp on our unity as a church. And so as part of that, we decided that as part of our membership processes, we'll utilize a four-session uh, membership class. And so we've been putting ourselves through that class for this current sermon series. We are on session three this morning, and we've been looking at the importance of church membership and looking at uh, how it bonds us together and how the Lord uses our bond together in unity as a church family to grow us and to shape us. And we're continuing our look at that this morning. And as a part of that, we've been hearing testimonies from our church family. And many of you have been working on your writing out your testimony, and you've already given me that and those have been so encouraging for me to hear from you about how beneficial and edifying that process was for you. And then also many of you have commented on how you've given your testimony to some of our fellow church members, a brother or sister to to look at and to read over and how sweet of a time that has been and just sharing those testimonies together. And that's the point is that we hear each other's stories and we know each other's stories of God's grace and how he has brought us to faith in him. And so today, church, the question which I want us to consider is how is it that we are called to live out God's word in our daily life? How is it that we are called to live out God's word in our daily life? Last week, we looked at Paul's desire to make the word of God more fully known. We see that there in Colossians 1 verse 25, that this was his desire to make God's word more fully known to the church at Colossae. And as we examine these words to the Corinthians also, in which Paul, as he was stating and, and calling out this faction that had developed within the church at Corinth and how some were siding with one teacher over another teacher. And he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And we looked at that and we said, well, what it, was it that they were planting and what was it they were using to water the church with? And it was God's word. And so this morning, we'll focus specifically on that truth of how God grows us in community with one another. And as we hear God's word preached, and as we hear God's word taught, as we bond together in the teaching of God's word, we'll see how does that then affect and change our hearts? And how does it then affect how we live out our lives? Because in a world full of polarization and tribalism and disunity. It can seem as though unity is some distant fairy tale, something that is not able to be had within this world. And that's true. Is that true unity can't be had by the means and the ways of this world. So this morning as we continue to examine Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, we're going to see the incredible weight and the incredible importance that is placed on our unity together as church family with one another in living out God's word. My aim is for us to see that in order for us to live up to the incredible responsibility of walking worthy of our calling in Christ, we must walk in unity. As unity takes the center stage this morning, that's our, that's our key word. That's what we're focused on and looking at. As we examine the impact that God's word has on our lives when we dwell in unity, I also want to challenge us with an example from another church in the same reason, region as Colossae, a church that didn't quite live up to that calling with which we are called. And in doing so, my prayer is that we will see the unity which the Lord has won for us already 
and forged for us must be protected, defended, and celebrated. I'll ask you to stand once again in honor of the reading of God's word from Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This time, I promise I will end with this is the word of God. And I ask you to echo praise be to God. Colossians 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it is living and effective and it actively is cutting away those parts of our heart which need to be removed and which it is shining light on the corners of darkness within our heart. So God, as we, your church here at Southside, gather this morning to hear from your word, may no other thing come from my mouth other than that which is from your word. God, bless this time. Edify us in this time. Sanctify us in this time so that we may leave as shining lights of your grace as we go out into a dark and dying world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. So I like to try and frequently remind us that when we read and study these New Testament epistles, it's important that we remember that they are just that. They're letters. These are letters from one church leader or a group of church leaders to a church or churches in a specific region, which means that as Paul is writing these letters, he's not starting with chapter 1, verse 1. Grace and peace be to you, right? He's not, he's not writing out a verse at each sentence or in the middle of a sentence. These are tools. These are helpful references which were added afterwards so that we can have easily notifiable markers within God's Word that we can reference and come back to and think about and share with one another. So when we stop at the end of a chapter or we isolate a verse, this can often cause us to lose focus of what the author was trying to communicate or it can be to our detriment of our study. So you'll notice that in verse 1, we see there mentioned another church that is in the same situation as the Colossians. Being that they have never seen Paul face to face yet, yet they have been tremendously blessed by his ministry. And we discussed at length in session one of this series how Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus impacted the lives of so many. And that in that three-year ministry in Ephesus, we saw then people leave from there so that they could go and plant churches throughout the rest of that region. And Colossae falls into this group. As we saw, Epaphras was impacted by Paul's teaching. And Epaphras then goes on to plant the church at Colossae. And Paul refers to Epaphras again there in chapter 1 of Colossians. And now we're given insight into another church that falls into this category, Laodicea. Laodicea was located just nine miles away from Colossae. And if Laodicea sounds familiar, it's because it's one of those seven churches in the book of Revelation that received a letter from the Lord. And it was also one of Paul's stops on his third missionary journey. But to this point, he had not been there yet. And there's another nearby church named here in Colossians, but it's later on in chapter 4. That's the church at Hierapolis. And so the geographical location of these churches would have made them closely connected. I, I took a picture of one of the maps from one of my study Bibles. If we'll pull that map up real quick, you can see there 
Those three little dots, I'm not sure. Yeah, you can see it pretty good right there. So you got Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. Colossae and Laodicea are only about nine miles apart. So you can see that Hierapolis and Colossae are probably just about, you know, a little over or a little under 18 miles apart. Probably, probably something like 15 or 16 miles apart from one another. So... The geographical location of these churches would admit that they were closely connected, that they shared letters from Paul with one another, that they shared in their giving to one another. Because not only would they easily be able to visit one another and encourage one another, but also as different church leaders would come to visit, they would make the rounds and visit all the churches in that region sometimes. And this geographical closeness would have undoubtedly provided them with much strength and encouragement. However, this connectivity could also mean that if some sort of false doctrine worked its way into the church, that it could also cause an infection to spread to the other churches. And this is exactly what's happening in this region. This is exactly what Paul is confronting and preparing to confront in the rest of his letter to the church at Colossae. And we'll revisit these other churches a little later on this morning, but at the, uh, towards the end. But for now, I want us to focus on Paul's message to the church at Colossae and really his desire here for the other churches to know this at well, as well. So last week, we left off at the end of chapter 1 where we saw how Paul viewed his sufferings on behalf of the church as reason for rejoicing. And then it was, it was for the sake of their spiritual growth. And then we saw that Paul listed as his goal that he would make the God, word of God fully known to the church. And so this informs Paul's words as we flow into chapter 2 of this letter. As we move in, again, he's not writing chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's just writing a letter to his beloved fellow saints, this church that he wants to encourage and support and, and help grow. So as we've seen, God's word is the single motivating factor behind what drives the church. So now we must ask ourselves, how has God designed his church to live out his word? How has God designed his church to live out his word? If God's word and his spirit at work in and through his word are the single driving force, and it is, then what is the context with which God has designed for us to grow in our understanding of Him and of His Word? Well, let's look at Paul's encouragement. You see there, start again in verse 1. For I want you to know, so that word for, it can be looked at as because or, or in light of. So I, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not seen me face to face. So pause right there. So studying this and last week's passage, church, have given me a newfound focus and conviction in my prayer life as your pastor. As a pastor, when I read Paul so authentically writing about his struggles for the sake of those who he is encouraging and leading from afar, it just led me to be overwhelmed to become consumed with the idea that God would give me a ferocious discipline to struggle on behalf of this church. That I would toil before God and in his word for your sake. Indeed, this should be the approach that all of us take when it comes to considering growing in community together. Because really this is at the idea of unity is that we are unified in our growth in God's word and for God's glory. And so when it comes to thinking about discipling our families, when it comes to, to thinking about discipling our one, I've been so encouraged to hear lately how many different times throughout the you know, last couple of months we've had different people's one person that they're seeking to share the gospel with and have intentional gospel conversation with have visited the church over different holidays and, and the like. This should have an effect on how we approach our Sunday school class or any of the relationships where we are spiritually pouring into the lives of someone else or doing life in community with others. So parents, do you struggle with God's word on behalf of your children? 
I have to tell you, that one, that one hurts. But husbands, do you struggle within God's word on behalf of your wife's spiritual growth? Wives, do you struggle within God's word for the benefit of your family? Or how about this? Do you struggle within God's word for the benefit of your Sunday school class? And I'm not talking about just teachers either there. Like, do you earnestly spend time struggling through God's word, those passages that you don't understand or rejoicing in those passages that you do understand on behalf of your Sunday school class so that when you show up for Sunday school, you're ready to study that passage that, that you are looking at together that day and so that you can not just passively sit by but actively participate in sharing what God is teaching you in his word so that your brother or your sister next to you can benefit from that. This is the idea here is that Paul is saying that I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, church, and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. And what's this struggle? It's rooted in what we saw back earlier, what we looked at last week. So really what I want us to see here is may we plead with God that he would give us an overwhelming desire to struggle and to wrestle and to mine his word till our own strength is physically weary but spiritually filled and energized through the working of his spirit within us through his word. Not just for our benefit, but for the benefit of those we love and are leading or walking with, for the benefit of those we are growing in community with. Because as we keep reading, we see that is exactly what Paul's struggle is on behalf of these churches. So we pick back up in verse two. For I want you to know a greatest struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love that their hearts may be encouraged. So Paul's struggle is that these churches would be spiritually encouraged in their inner being, completely united, that their hearts would literally be knit together as part of their fellowship together as God's church. And so I want you to know a greater struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, that all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, lifted up, and being knit together in love, what? what? What's the purpose of being knit, knit together? Well, he tells us as he continues the sentence. Knit together in love to, the two there being, essentially being for the purpose of. So it, it's, a conjunct, it's a conjunction there. It's linking it. It's for the purpose of, because of, that their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love, so that they may or for the purpose of reaching all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So Paul's struggle is that these churches would be united in Christ. So how has God designed this church to live out his word? He has designed it. He has designed us to live out his word united in Christ. So how do we rebuke false doctrine? How do we protect our unity and strengthen, encourage, and challenge one another? We do so by linking arms together and tightly clinging to God's word as our firm foundation. How do we reach the full, uh, how do we reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding? How do we obtain access to all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? We do it together united by being united in Christ. Not united in some idea, not united in some institution or by anything else, but Christ and him crucified and resurrected for us. Because notice what the end result is there. This is Paul's, this is how he's laying it out. Notice what the end result of being encouraged and knit together in love is to reach all the riches 
up. So Paul's struggle is that they would be united in Christ so that they would grow in their knowledge of God's word. And we see this when we look back to what Paul said at the end of chapter 1. Remember, I pointed out there that word for there at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 2. It essentially means because. Well, because of what? Because of what he's already said and laid out. So go back to verse 25 of chapter 1. So we know Paul rejoices in his suffering for your sake. He says he's filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. Not that anything was missing or incomplete from what Christ accomplished on the cross. But as we said last week, because he sees this as a continuation of his own afflictions and suffering on behalf of Christ as a continuation of what Christ accomplished. And then verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. And what is that stewardship? To make the word of God fully known. And so this informs everything that comes after it. What is the, the, the mystery hidden for all the ages, as he said there in verse 26, and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Well, where has it been revealed? Where has it been hidden and where, where were our sinful hearts unable to see? It was in God's Word. So that's why He wants to make it fully known. That's where the mystery is. That's where it was hidden. It was there all along, but they couldn't see it because of the sinfulness and hardness of their hearts. And then we, you continue reading there. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches. So we see these words popping up again. Riches, mystery, knowledge, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. So that's then how we flow directly into chapter 2. For, because, so because of all this, I want to make known to you how great a struggle I have for this stewardship of making God's word fully known. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged. Being knit together in love. To reach what? All the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So we're seeing those words, mystery, knowledge, riches, pop up. See, this is where we begin to see Paul building his argument for conflicting the heresy that was threatening the church. See, there were these mystics, these Gnostic thinkers, these heretics that were coming into the church, and this presents a problem. Because if you're familiar with Gnosticism or Gnostics, the, the pursuit of Gnostic thinking is that there is no one source, no one exclusive moral code. Instead, there's always more knowledge. There's a secret knowledge. There's a higher knowledge to pursue. And so the Gnostics are constantly seeking to, to gain and attain to the higher knowledge and hold that as what they have above and, and beyond everybody else. And so these Gnostics are coming in and they're simply pursuing Christ so as to add to their knowledge, right? And the life of the Gnostic is to be in constant pursuit of higher knowledge. So Christ isn't all in all. Christ is just a means to an end to even greater knowledge beyond that for the Gnostic. So Paul is seeking to make it clear to the church that in Christ and in Christ alone is the only place that we can have full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. Whose mystery? God's mystery. So it's not some mystery thing out there in the universe, not some hidden knowledge that we have to pursue and, and gain and attain to and hold it above everybody else. But you want to know where the full assurance is. You want to know where all knowledge is. You, don't want, you want to know where God's mystery is revealed. It's in Christ. So in other words, when we're united in our knowledge of Christ and Him crucified, we have all we need. You see, God sovereignly uses our unity to bring about in us an assurance that is complete and a richly overflowing knowledge of Christ through His Word to make known to make the word of God fully known. That is where all the mystery, that is where we can have full assurance of understanding the knowledge of God's mystery in Christ. It's where we see that Christ is at the center of it all. 
Because where is it that Jesus pointed the disciples? We, I keep bringing this example up, but where did he point the disciples to the, who are on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection? He led them through Moses and all the prophets. So the Old Testament. He said it was there all along. This is where all mystery can be revealed. This is where all knowledge can be found. This is where the treasure is in knowing Christ. And how do we know Christ? In his word. How do we grow in that? By being united, knit together in love. Because as we continue reading there in verse 3, we see he, Paul expounds upon that. In whom, so in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So listen, Gnostic. You want higher knowledge? You want higher wisdom? This is where it all is. It's with he who created wisdom. It's with he who created knowledge. It's with he. It is with the word who was with him in the beginning. So there is no higher knowledge above Christ. And how do we know him? How do we grow in him? How do we attain to him? By being united in Christ. There's no secret source, only what has been revealed plainly in the created order and in God's word. No external metaphysical rule, but one ruler and one authority. That is the king who is Christ. So where do we find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? In Christ. How has God ordained that we attain to that knowledge? By being united in him in our study and practice of his word. And how is God designed for us to be united? Through his church. This is it. That's why we come together. This is why we say that we have to defend and protect and celebrate our unity. God has created the church as the context in, when, in which we grow. The context in which we are encouraged. The context in which we are being knit together in love and reaching the full assurance of understanding knowledge of God's mystery in Christ is by being united in Christ as his church. Because it's not like we come to the realization of our sinfulness before a holy God, respond in repentance, and then boom, a switch is flipped. And we've, we've just received all this knowledge and we have all this wisdom and we're so smart and, and able to understand everything that God's word says. Because if that's the case, I missed out on that. <laughs> no, it takes time. It takes growth. It takes bonding together with your brothers and sisters so that they can encourage and challenge you. It takes us coming together week in and week out, loving on one another, supporting each other, encouraging each other, having our hearts knit together. It's a continuing spiritual walk, not in the context of isolation, but in the context of community. Because this is what we see Paul say as we continue to read. Verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So in other words, so I, this is why he's saying this. He, this is where he, he breaks down that this is what he is saying. They, they know of all this controversy going on, of these Gnostics coming in. So he, this is why I'm saying this. Paul wants to spell it out, spell it out plainly. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments that there's some higher knowledge other than Christ. Verse 4, or excuse me, verse 5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see what? To see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So don't let anyone distract you with fanciful knowledge. All true knowledge is found in Christ. Don't let anyone tear the seams of your encouragement and your love and your unity for one another by pulling your eyes away from Christ. And this is why Paul wants to rejoice. Paul wants these churches to grow in their unity in Christ that they may grow in their knowledge of him. And this is what he said from the beginning of his letter. If you look back in verse 10 of chapter 1. He said, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That was his prayer for the church at Colossae. And so he writes these things that they may have a firm doctrine with which to defend 
in which to fight for their unity in Christ so that he can celebrate and take joy in their unity and their rock-solid faith in Christ. So in applying this word, in realizing the importance of our unity in Christ, the question for us then as his church, as we continue to think about these things, the question for us then is how do we fight for and defend our unity in Christ? If our unity in Christ is the context in which God has created and designed for us as his church to know him better and to grow in our knowledge of his word, then how do we fight for and defend that unity? Because that needs to be protected and it needs to be celebrated. Well, first and foremost, we do it by pointing one another to his word. If this feels an awful lot like last week, it, it's intentional. It's, in, it's meant to flow into seeing how God's word being the center focus and God's word preached means that that is what unites us and that is where we should point each other constantly. So that when our brother or sister is struggling, we're saying, hey, how much time have you been spending in God's word? When they tell us about something going on in our life so that we who have, making sure that we've been spending the time in God's word that we should know where to point them. Because again, all of this is driven by and dependent upon what? Where do we find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? In Christ. In whom are all the full assurance, are all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge? Christ. And how do we get there? By being united in Christ. Well, how was Paul seeking to show these churches all these things? Where do we ourselves come to know Christ? In his word. This is what it means to be in good order, as you see there in verse 5. This is what it means to have the firmness of faith in Christ. To know his word and to point one another to his word. This is the primary way we can fight for and defend our unity. United in Christ and united in his word. We continue reading there, verse 6. Paul says, therefore, now that's the easy word to identify. So because of everything that he's just said, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So this is where we get down to the truth of the matter. The gospel is not just about saying or believing the right things, but that what we are saying and what we are believing must have an impact on what we are doing. If there's no discernible difference between us and the world, if the fruit tastes and looks the same, then something's wrong. For us to walk in him together, the you there is plural. It's paralabete. In Greek, I would always transfer the plural you as y'all. My professor accepted it. He said it was perfectly acceptable, right? So I called it the, the Texas standard version, all right? So this is the, the you there, again, is reminding us. That plural you reminds us he's not writing to one person but to the context of a community of faith, to a church, just like us. So just as together, walk in him together. We, do, we have to, do we have individual responsibility? Absolutely. Do we have a personal relationship with Christ? Absolutely. But it doesn't stay in that context. It's lived out in the context of community. God has ordained and providentially designed us as his people to do everything united together for his glory. And so when we're united together for his glory, that is where we will find our good. Paul uses this idea of walking in him. Parapatete. He uses this elsewhere many times in his encouragement of other churches. And so I'll encourage you, keep your finger there in Colossians because we're coming back. But go to Ephesians chapter 4. Stay there in Colossians because we're coming back. But Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. 
So this is another example of where Paul uses the, the root word there is peripatao. It was the suffix there that was uh, throwing me off. But peripatao, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, verse 1 of chapter 4, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So Paul, again, using that same phrase within the same context, Paul gives us five elements here that are necessary for us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. So he gives us the, the challenge, the call, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That's his urge. And then he gives five elements after that in the verses that follow. And I just want to point a few of those out right here. So how do we fight for and defend our unity in Christ? How do we walk in a manner worthy? Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So how do we fight for and defend our unity in Christ? By living united in humility. So the implication there is what? That if we're to walk worthy of our calling, who do we have to put first? You see, the kingdom hierarchy in, in God's kingdom that we have to display in our lives is Christ, others, self. Because there's three other times in Paul's letters that he uses that word for humility. And every single one of them are in relation to unity within the church. And so this is a key element of living out our faith, of walking worthy of the gospel to which we have been called. And that is to exhibit the utmost humility toward one another. In order for us to maintain, protect, and promote our unity, the number one person that we have to be ready to fight and to force into submission is ourselves. So what does it look like to live united in all humility? It looks like taking food to Miss Helen Cheek when she falls and breaks her hip, as so many of you did. And she's repeatedly told me how thankful she was for that and how continually thankful she is. It looks like taking off work to ride with your pastor to go to a hospital visit. It looks like taking food to many of our other church members on Wednesday nights or sometimes just because. It looks like volunteering for vacation Bible school. It looks like leading caboodles or kingdom kids. Or it looks like leading the youth and preparing meals on Wednesday nights. It looks like serving on committees and attending business meetings. Some of you thought you were going to sneak out the door, right? So it looks like seeking ways to serve our church family. We need people who are good with their hands at building and fixing and maintaining. There's two men in our church who work tirelessly at their day job together. And oftentimes, multiple times a week, they take extra time to come up here and work and fix and improve things around our campus. And we need to praise God for men like that. But we need more. We need more of us that are willing to do that. We need people who can cook and clean and are eager to serve with gladness in their hearts. We have lots of people filling these roles, but we need more. That's why part of our new membership class and our covenant includes educating on how we, how we, in committing to the church and committing to be a church member, are also committing to serve one another with all humility. What else does walking worthy look like? What are some other gospel indicators? We see listed there gentleness. And not in the sense of being timid or weak. I know that's often how we can categorize gentleness. But rather the gentleness here is said with emphasis, force. So it's the ability to show self-control is the idea here. The ability to think that I don't always have to say what I need to say in a harsh or aggressive tone. But I can speak the truth in love. The next thing we see listed there is patience. Patience in the New Testament is used to either describe or expound on the patience of God towards sinners, the patience of Christ and his suffering on the cross, or the fact that those are our standard for the type of patience that should be displayed 
in those who have been impacted by the gospel. What else? How else do we fight for and defend our unity? The next thing you see listed there is, lost my spot the page. I urge you to walk manner worthy of what you be called with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. How do we fight for and defend our unity in Christ? By living united in love. You see, this is the, the whole thing is that we love because he first loved us. So this idea of bearing with one another in love is not simply to make excuse for one another's sins. You see, that's not loving to simply look over the sins of a brother or a sister. Rather, this can also mean to endure with one another. That is to say that our unity in Christ as his church is not some pie in the sky, unrealistic, idealistic dream where we agree on 100% of everything. Rather, it's a unity that is bound by our love for one another and our love for one another is influenced and it's an overflow of our love for Christ. So if we ever find ourselves biting and devouring one another, it's time for a heart check. And that is to say, my love for Christ compels me to love you too much to let our differences separate our fellowship. Amen. What else do we see Paul say here in Ephesians 4? Verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is why our new church covenant has this listed in it as one of our we will statements. That we will work and pray to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We will submit to God's infallible, all-sufficient, and authoritative word in accordance with Southside Baptist Church's statement of faith. This is the first we will statement. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago, but I wanted us to see it within the context of where it was drawn from. This is where we clearly see that unity is not passively come by but instead must be actively maintained through the working of the Spirit in our lives. Because you'll notice that we're not the ones who create, achieve, or maintain our unity. Rather, our call is to maintain the unity which Christ has already won for us. And how do we maintain it? By submitting to Him. So who's the one that's doing all the work? He's the one who's accomplished the work and is actively doing the work through the Spirit's working in us. So Paul echoes a similar list to the church in Rome. All right, so you can turn from Ephesians there. Stay in Colossians because we're coming back to it. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Or the verses will be on the screen, but Romans 12, verses 9 through 12. Where Paul gives a similar challenge to the church at Rome. And he says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's a big one right there. So that is to, to be constantly putting yourself in a subservient role to your brother or sister. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So not to just do so just as a, a, a obligatory dutifulness, but to do so excitingly, eagerly, just as we saw in Colossians. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. So how do we fight for and defend our unity? By living united in zeal. By living united in zeal. So you want to know why membership in the local church matters? Because we have to eagerly and zealously maintain our unity through the Spirit's work in us. Unity in Christ cannot be maintained lazily or haphazardly. Why? Because we're sinful. We're still in the flesh. We're still at war. And sometimes the flesh wins. 
So that's where our brothers and sisters in the church step in and they push or they pull us closer to Jesus. That's where they rein us in by God's grace at work in them. And they say, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. They might not say it like that, but that's the, the gist of it, right? In order for us to maintain the unity won for us on the cross and through the grave, we have to do so eagerly and with much zeal. Lastly, how do we fight for and defend unity? Look at verse 13 there in Romans. You'll pull that back up. Verse 13 of Romans 12. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. How do we fight for and defend our unity? By living united in giving. We realize that not all of us can give the same amount. In fact, that's not what's required. But all of us can give as we are able. As that's what it means to be a steward of what God has given each of us, which is differently. And then we steward that together by contributing and giving to God what is already His. And this is what we see the early church do in Acts 2 and in Acts 4. We see them giving sacrificially. We see them giving generously for the work of ministry. We see some selling their property in Jerusalem, so their ownership in the promised land. They say, no, Christ is worth more. So as they listened to the word being taught, and as they were unified together in Acts, they did so while breaking bread and praying together in each other's home. And we see all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. So they gave what they could for the sake of one another. So being a church member means giving consistently. Now, the full number of those who believe were of one heart. This is Acts 4 and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So this is what it means to be united, is to be united in giving. We'll prepare, we'll, we'll wrap things up by going back to Colossians. I told you we were coming back. Colossians chapter 2. Because I want to show us something real quick. That's a sobering reminder and a humbling lesson. So remember I said I'd circle back. So Laodicea. Paul said that this was his desire, not just for the church at Colossae to know these things, but for the church at Laodicea. To know these things as well. And this is what Jesus had to say to the church in Laodicea. Well after Paul's writing to the church at Colossae. After Paul's third missionary journey there to Laodicea himself. This is what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3. Verse 15 through 17 to a gathering of believers. Who received similar message as the church at Colossae. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So this is probably this, this imagery here used by Jesus in this verse is probably one of the more recognizable analogies from Revelation, if not the, the whole Bible, this hot and cold, lukewarm. But few people know the, the deeper geographical significance of it. Because in this region where Hierapolis and Colossae and Laodicea were, there's this set of unique geographical features at these three cities. Hierapolis was known for its volcanic, heated mountain streams that possessed great minerals and formed hot pools for people to wade in, and it was thought to have healing properties. And then you had Colossae to the south. Colossae was known for its cool, spring-fed streams that provided incredible drinking water. So hot, cold. Hierapolis, Colossae. And then there's Laodicea in the middle, where there's a convergence of these two sources that made for this 
nasty, tepid mixture because the water was not hot enough anymore to dissolve away the minerals. And so it's full of all these minerals and you have the cold water converging with it. So it forms just this lukewarm water that's unpalatable. It's known and they uncovered clay pipes at the city of Laodicea that were just encrusted with minerals from this disgusting water. And what's interesting is that a, a quick examination of the churches who received these letters were all in this region, right? So how does one church in this region end up with a scathing letter from Jesus and the other two churches are their example of, I wish you were hot or cold. So I wish you were like Hierapolis or I wish you were like Colossae. But you're lukewarm, just like the water that you are forced to drink. You know how you become a lukewarm church? By being complacent in how you apply God's word. By neglecting the unity of the church. By failing to serve one another with humility and gentleness and patience and love and zeal. And ceasing to bear with one another. So that your walk becomes diluted by the culture. Our final point for this morning is to walk worthy of the calling to walk worthy of the gospel is to walk unified in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uniting us. We thank you for, for winning the victory of our unity. We thank you that it's not dependent upon us because if it was, we would have already failed. And any time that it has failed, it has been because of human sinfulness. So God, we thank you for all the victory that you've won in our church. We thank you for what you are doing in our midst now and pray that you would help us to continually submit to you as we submit to one another in you. God, help us to fight for and protect our unity by being humble, by bearing with one another in love, by eagerly and zealously serving and loving your church. Pray that you, we thank you for this time that we've had. We pray that you would bear fruit in our lives because of it and through your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.